No, I don't talk no. to no one in my ear at drama school. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Dan Delamotte, and I am so excited to be joined by the writer, actor, performer, Emma Dennis-Edwards. Emma, thank you for coming into Off Book this afternoon. Thank you so much. And I guess the first thing to say is congratulations for the American Dream 2.0, which is on in the Clare Theatre at the moment. Yeah, it is. It's going brilliantly, so I'm, I'm loving it. Good. I'm having a really good time. Good, good, good. I feel like I've watched it a lot of times because we've been in, like, kind of tech, dress, all of that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, I've watched it loads, but well, I Well, you are the writer. <laughs> I am the writer. I am That's the writer. That's kind of how it goes. How it goes. You watch your shows sometimes. <laughs> but I don't want to talk about the American Dream 2.0 just yet. Not because yet. Because I want to delve deeper into mm-hmm. the life of Emma Dennis-Edwards. And I want to know when you first felt or realised or thought that um, this writing malarkey or this performing malarkey was something that you were good at and enjoyed? Yeah, so I suppose, like, um, like I originally started going to, like, after-school clubs, so I went to, like, what is now Young Actors Theatre, but was Anna Shears, like, as an after-school thing. But I didn't actually kind of look at it as a career till I went to Brit school, probably, actually. Um, it was just something that I did after school. I don't... I don't no one in my family is an actor. No, no one apart from me. Um, no one's an actor. No one's in kind of like anything creative. So it was never like something that I'd seen people doing. So it was when I came to Brit school and kind of met people who was very much that was their career. So I was like, ah, that's a thing that people do. And were your family supportive of that decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my mum especially, um, I don't know. Well, kind of. Like, I had to do, like, make some concessions. So my mum was like, uh, when she realised that you don't get A-levels, because basically you do a BTEC at Brits, uh, or an, well, at the time there was BTECs and MVQs, and then there's an option to add on some A-levels as well. And so mum was like, you can only go if you also do it do some A-levels I was like okay cool so I was very very busy at break because <laughs> I was doing this whole B-Tech and then I was doing I did yeah I did A-level English and sociology as well which was fun mm. and you wanted to be a weather presenter didn't I you I did want to be a weather girl that's why I did drama GCSE because I was like oh yeah I want to be like a meteorologist I think it's like a broadcast mete- meteorologist so like somebody who looks at the weather and um, kind of presents that so that's why I did geography and drama GCSE, so I was like, okay, cool. And I did better at drama than <laughs> geography. Just marginally. I, I didn't, I think, what did I get at drama? Maybe I got a B. I didn't. Do you know what, Emma? Me and you were just the same. I never wanted to be a weather girl, but I did do drama and geography, so there we go. Did yeah, you? Yeah, something else we got in common. What else did you do? Uh, also, sociology. Oh my God, there we go. Me and you, we're two Did you sociology at A level yeah, or GCSE? I did, I did. Yeah, it was good, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah, it's good, fun about the basics of modern feminism and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, it's exactly. really cool. Yeah. That, um, so do you think that all weather presenters have got a drama GCSE then? Is that what you're saying? I think so. Okay, right. Well, you heard it I here first. I reckon they do. Yeah, okay. They Excellent. should, like, if they're listening, they should be like, <laughs> yeah, actually, no. <laughs> so you quickly kind of dropped the idea of becoming a weather uh, yeah. presenter. Is yeah. that what you call them? Um, yeah. Uh, and so was Brit a formative time in your life then? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. So it was just completely different to school. Mm. Um, so I went to a, like, a very kind of like state kind of I keep saying it's comprehensive but it's not it's actually grant maintained which I don't know quite what that means but yeah (laughs) so I went to one of those and um it was like very kind of standard bog standard school and then at Brit it was like very much like um 
like everyone took the arts quite seriously. So it wasn't just like I don't think when I was at school, drama GCSE wasn't taken seriously. Whereas like I think like my course was taken very seriously. The teachers really like were really supportive and amazing and it was just a very very nurturing environment and I just loved being there I go there quite a lot so like I pop in and he's um, still in touch with some of your teachers I am um, yeah. Imogen who works at the Young Vic Imogen was my Brody, teacher that, yeah. Imogen Brody was my was one of my teachers when I was there um I still see the head of theatre who was actually he began his teaching year when I when I was there so he started around the same time as me he's now head of theatre we'll give him a shout out big up Simon Stevens <laughs> the other Simon Stevens the other not the one that presents the rival podcast to no, this of course not, not that guy Stevens. not that guy um, and uh, Stuart Warden who's now principal was also one of my teachers so it was like really amazing I, I loved Brit School I had a really good good I had a good time uh, and what happened when you left Brit School? What happened next? Uh, I went to, <laughs> um, I went to drama school. Uh, I didn't have as much of a good time, but it was fine. Oh. So I went to East Fifteen after Brits, and um, yeah, I found drama school quite difficult, um, just because. So I grew up in Hackney, East London, very diverse, and then went to Brit School again, a really diverse school, and then went to East Fifteen. And I was like oh, I'm a black person, this is interesting. And it was something that I'd never really had to think about very much because I don't think I'd been a minority before. And so what did that mean in terms of your time at that drama school? It just meant that, and I think it's probably experienced a lot of kind of black, probably undergraduates in general, feel that on top of all the kind of normal pressures of being a student or being an acting student or training, on top of that, you're dealing with what is, I suppose, a kind of insidious institutional racism and actually trying to wrap your head around that instead of just getting on with your training. Like, there's, like, kind of two things that you're dealing with. And I think it's it's better now, and I think people are kind of talking about it more, but I definitely didn't feel in a position to talk about it when I was at drama school. So it's been really heartening to see kind of, like, the diversity school... And just drama school's being a bit more open to the conversation. Whereas I think when I went, they were like, well, you're here, so that's fine. Like, we're, we're being, we're, we're letting people in, so that's, you know, we're doing our bit. But actually, it's about working out once we diversify those schools, we'll make them really diversify, make them representational, I suppose. Then what do we do next? And I think when I was at drama school 10 years ago, perhaps that wasn't the forefront of the conversation that wasn't the conversation at all really so but this is a really formative time in your life you know you're at drama school you're mm. a young person mm. and you're aware of your identity as a minority within that drama school yeah did that inform the work that you were interested in in making or writing or performing yeah i think so i think so to an extent but then i feel like very much there was there's 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 a twofold thing so that i think when i was at drama school there was a real sense of, oh, I, I don't want to be seen as a black da-da-da-da or a black actor, a black playwright. I'm I'm just an actor. I'm just a playwright. I'm just that. That's, that's you know, it doesn't matter. So there was, like, much more of a sense of, oh, well, I want to play Juliet because black girls don't do that, so I should do it. And rather than actually being like, okay, what else is there? Like, who are the black writers about? Who's making work? that with people that looks like me and I just yeah I think at that time that the more consideration was a one to fit in blend in maybe 
So what would you say to the Emma Dennis Edwards that went to drama school? What would contemporary you say oh to God. her? Oh, God. Um, I would say you don't need to eat hummus and carrots like all the other <laughs> girls. Like, you can have a meal. It is fine. Um, I'd also say, like, maybe... What would I say to her? Third year, Emma. That it'll be all right, you know, and that, you know, there's a freedom when you leave the industry. Like, who you are at drama school will not define the rest of your career. Because I definitely wasn't, like, the top student at drama school. I definitely wasn't the person that got picked for all the lead parts. I, I, I just wasn't that that person. Um, and that's okay. Whereas, like, I think at drama school, the sense was, I don't really fit in here. Therefore, I won't fit in in this industry. Like, there won't be a space for me. And I think there definitely is. And did you take solace in your writing, maybe? I think so. I mean, I wasn't... It's really weird, because, like, I wasn't really writing plays. So I'd always, like, been really interested in stories. And I think that's why I got into acting, actually. It's more stories has always been my thing so I'd always like written whether that was like kind of articles or like uh, sort of like fiction stuff like that um, so I didn't really begin writing plays till you know I'd been out of drama school for quite a while maybe four or five years before I started writing plays but yeah I think I mainly found kind of solace in other artists so other like been, I feel really lucky that a lot of like kind of black female actors and playwrights and directors have really taken me under their wing and like been really supportive of my career and I'm really grateful for that. Um, people have uplifted me and I think that was like really lovely. So do you still have a network of people from from that time? No, I don't talk no. to no one in my year at drama school. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, no, I do. I do. I do. I speak to someone who's the year above me. So I've got a really good friend who's a playwright called Smalia Seaton, who's amazing, and uh, she's a really good friend of mine. And she's very much part of that network of people who really supported. And actually, Somalia really supported my kind of writing career and really, you know, got me in front of people when I was kind of starting out. And I've got another friend who's an actor called Kyle Bino-Smith. And, um, yeah, so those are, like, the two people from drama school that I probably still speak to. But So when was it and why was it that you decided to focus on the writing? Still perform? You yeah. still act? You're I still, still doing yeah, that now? Yeah, yeah, I'm still doing but, that. But, but writing seemed to come to the forefront. I think, like, I had a year of just going to some really, like, random auditions where um, every, <laughs> like, basically, I, I think I auditioned for three parts in a row where all the characters were strippers, like, all of them. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But they were not, like, kind of, that wasn't, like, the whole story. Like, they were kind of strong, empowered women. But I was like, that's really interesting that the only way that we can kind of tell those stories of, like, empowered strong characters who are female is by making them sex workers and kind of their a lot of their narrative is tied around their sex work and I was like there's other ways to kind of do that and I was like well maybe I could write them and it wasn't so much me writing for myself because I'll talk about Funeral Flowers later but that's the first thing that I've written that I performed in but it was more about wanting to diversify the stories that I saw on stage so that's why I started writing. So it's a form of activism, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it is, actually. 
Gosh, yeah, I'd never thought about that. But yeah, it's Me neither. That was a good question, wasn't it? I love it. <laughs> so you're smart. Um, and so was that was your writing skills nurtured at the Old Vic then? Because tell me about the Old Vic 12. Yeah, so um, the first writer's group that I went on was actually at Oval House. Okay. So I did this writer's group at Oval House, which was a collaboration with English Pen who are an organisation that work with writers who are incarcerated because of political reasons, actually. And so, actually, English Pen was the organisation that I was quite interested in. I was kind of doing Oval House Youth Theatre stuff, but I'd never, at that point, hadn't written anything. And then I started, you know, getting really interested about freedom of expression and what that is, and work with our writers' tutors and that writers' group. I We did two plays for the 33% festival which is what they used to run at Oval and um, two of my plays got picked so I did, had a short play and I had a long play that was upstairs I'm doing I'm doing actions guys <laughs> like I know Emma you can't pointing see them. up. I'm pointing up um, but yeah so I did those and I was like okay this is cool what's the 33% festival why is it, it called was, that I think it was to do with the number of... It was a festival of 16 to 25-year-olds. And I think 33% of Londoners in that year, which was like maybe 2011, 2012, were that... were Yes, that's what it's called, 33%. It's a cool marketing thing. Um, <laughs> I, I believe. But yeah, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. That was really, really cool. So I shared a bill with a writer called Isley Lynn, who's great as well. Yes, I know Isley. Isley's yeah, sick. Yeah. yeah, so we our plays were like part of this like double bill. And it's really interesting because she, she wrote a play with two women, I wrote a play with three, and it was just, yeah, it was really fun. Great. And so then the old Vic. One. And then the old Vic. Oh, that's quite a long journey. Yeah. So after that, I did Royal Court Writers oh, Group. Oh, sorry, I keep, I keep missing all these theatres. Yeah, I did. I did a few writers groups. I did Royal Court Writers Group. I did the Lyric Hammersmith. I'm with... going to fire my researcher. That's for uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm an old lady, so there's quite a lot to go through. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did. I did a few writers groups, and then Old Vic Twelve. Um, well, no. My first connection with the old Vic, let's let's actually go back a little bit. So before I was writing, I did something called Old Vic when Old Vic before Old Vic twelve, there was Old Vic New Voices. So Old Vic New Voices was a talent programme and I did an exchange uh, to New York. Um, but I was there as an actor. So they did this programme where they got like I think it was three actors, three writers, three directors maybe more, maybe five, I can't remember. And I was directed by Natalie Ibu in a playroom by Steve Heavey, and it was all fab. And that was my first kind of introduction to Old Vic's kind of programmes there. And then, flash forward six years ago, uh, like last year, I got accepted onto the Old Vic 12 programme uh, as a playwright, which is really cool. So it's like a year-long programme, working with the Old Vic on a new play, my place called Bricks. You've heard it here first. <laughs> Tell us all about Bricks. Bricks is about, um, it's set on a West London council estate and it looks at um, 50 years of social housing in the UK. So from the the families first moving into the flats in 1967. So there's three flats. Um, so it follows the journey of these flats from 1967 to 2017 when Grenfell happened. So every act is 10 years. 
Amazing. Yeah. And that's in development at the moment. That's in development at the moment. So that's really... Ah, so good. When might that see an audience? Ah, so uh, we've got our stage reading early 2020 at the Orphic. So that'd be cool. Yeah, it's so exciting. That is exciting. I love it. It's going to be so good. There's so many characters. It's a big play. (laughs) It's like 30 odd characters. Yeah. It is crazy. Great. I'm like... I know there comes a point in your career where you have to like scale it up a bit, and yeah. do you know what I mean? We're just getting there. You're not tempted to set a play in Hackney, your ends, my ends. <sighs> I did. I wrote a play for the. Oh, do you live in Hackney? Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. Um, of I did. I, do. I wrote a play for the Arcola Young Company yeah. uh, called He She They, yeah. which was about a boy, a girl, and a non-binary person um, growing up in Hackney. Mm-hmm. So. It was about that. So I have I have written a little bit about Hackney, but yeah, there definitely does need to be a big Hackney play because again, that's quite an interesting kind of yeah. history. Yeah. Oh, you're influencing me. <laughs> you're influence, well, man. We're, we're basically the same person, Em. Do you know what I mean? We're the Our same background. same geezers. We're not. Love yeah, it. But there we go. There we go. <laughs> um, so you've you've mentioned it already. Let's talk about funeral flowers. I want yeah. to hear all about that. Yeah. So funeral flowers started as a ten minute play for the Royal Court Tottenham Festival. <laughs> so I did the Royal Court uh, Writers Program, and um, as part of that, you get asked to write a full length play. Um, so I wrote this full length play, and they were like, "Oh yeah, we like it. We're not going to produce it, but we really like it." <laughs> it's like great. Um, and they're like, "Okay, cool. Like you, you, we wish you well." And I was like. Oh, okay. You're not going to put on my play. Um, cool. Fine. Had a bit of a sulk. Moved on. And then I got a call and I was asked, um, they told me about the Tottenham Festival, which at the time the Royal Court were doing a lot of work in the borough of Harringay. Specifically? Specifically <laughs> Tottenham. And um, they asked me to write a 10 minute play with a member of the local community. So I was like, okay, cool. And so the lady I got was a woman called Gina Moffat, and I was like, cool. And the, and Chris Sonics, who's now at the bunker, by the time he was an associate artist at the Royal Court, uh, he was like, okay, you got to meet this woman, Gina, because the play has to be written, you know, in collaboration with, like, a local community leader. She's proper sick. You should meet her. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. And I could not get hold of this woman. <laughs> Like, for, like, three weeks, I was like, oh, my gosh. This is my, like, Royal Court Commission. I fucked it up. No, nobody, this is not going to happen. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go to Bernie Grant Art Centre, find this woman, say hi to her. And wait a minute, how do you know she was going to be at Bernie Grant Art Centre? Because she worked there. Oh, okay, it wasn't just a random guess. No, 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 she worked, she she runs the cafe there. Oh, so okay. I knew she ran the cafe there, so I'm like, I'm just going to go. If she runs it, she's probably at work all the time. So yeah. I just went through... And she was there. Are you Gina? I was, like, you Are you, I was like, hi, I was very humble. I'm Emma. I'm, I'm a writer from the Royal Court. And I'd like to um, speak with Gina. She come out and she was just like, yeah. And, I've, and what I thought was going to be a play about food and working in a cafe and like that stuff turned into funeral flowers because Gina had started her floristry business whilst uh, as an inmate in prison. Um, so we spoke about her kind of journey from prison to running her own business and just being a general boss lady. Um, I've got like a lot of admiration for business people in general. So I, as, as a talent... All right, Alan Sugar, I, I love that. <laughs> it's really weird because like, I suppose in essence I'm a socialist, but then actually I'm really interested in, in entrepreneurs and like how that is because it's... Uh, 
it's something that I just don't have. It's not a it's not a muscle that I have. So when I meet people who are quite entrepreneurial and have created their own businesses and like it's bit like mum businesses and all that, I'm like, wow. <laughs> or internet businesses, I'm always like really impressed by that. So yeah, we got talking about her experience of starting her own floristry business and I was like, that's really interesting. And we spoke about her kids and what it is to go to prison and leave your leave your children behind and Jean was really lucky her family really looked after her children um whereas a lot of people who are inside don't have that and so the character of Angelique came from the idea of a young girl whose mum is in prison and she's grown up in the care system and how that affects her life and her decisions so it's very much a coming of age story she's a 17 year old girl who's trying to trying to get work out what it is that she wants from her life and how to find that um but Gina very much was like one of the things that Gina does is she talks to a lot of young women about how to just avoid getting in the same situations that she got in um and so it felt like we that was the story that needed to be told for the people of Tottenham because that play Funeral Flowers is very much like for that audience and is it set in Tottenham it's well? set in Tottenham so that's why it's really sick because we're going Bernie Grant Art mm. Centre to finish the kind of London Incredible. tour which is amazing and a place which is quite far away from Tottenham mm-hmm. I know because I've done this journey mm. is Edinburgh Edinburgh which is where you took the play no? yeah the play did go to Edinburgh <laughs> which was cool you knew <laughs> It was really yeah. cool. Edinburgh's really like, yeah. Edinburgh's a funny old one, isn't it? Because like, I don't know. There's just so much stuff and it's so expensive and it's just all a bit mad. But I had a really, I very much went to Edinburgh with a sense of, this is a really interesting play. Like I had a, like producers uh, from Power Play who were like, you know, we're taking up some plays. We really want this show to be a part of it. And I was like, okay, cool. And I very much thought, well, no one's going to see it. We weren't, like, in, like... We were part of the Pleasance, but we had our own, like, house. So Funeral Flowers was originally performed, like, promenade. Like, you go into a room, I'm in there, then I'm talking, and I, then you go to another room, and I go into the bathroom, all kinds of shit. It's quite sick. Oh, I miss doing it like that. Maybe <laughs> we should do it like that in London. We should do one London show like that, actually. Do it. Do it. Yeah. So people can get that Edinburgh experience. But because of that, like, we had quite small audiences, so you couldn't have loads of people there. And so I was like, well, no one's going to watch the show. It's cool. Like, I'm just going to really use it as a chance, like, a big, long R&D of this show, see how audience react to it and, like, work that out. And then it did really well. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Because I don't know how much of an Edinburgh show Funeral Flowers is. Mm Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not... It's not like a... It's not a brand new story, actually. You know, a 17-year-old teenage girl, like, trying to work her way through life. So I was a bit like, oh, how are people really going to connect to this? Is our industry really going to get it? And then they did, and then and it did really well. And it won awards Good, it deserves to do well. What did it win? It won a Philip Burkanza Award <laughs> for Best uh, Solo Performance. Woo, congratulations. And it also won a Fringe First. Incredible. And it's now an Offie, no, I'm also an Offie-nominated actress as well for the performance in Bunga, so it did really well. Oh, excellent. Oh, People love it. That. Got some nice reviews. People Excellent. said nice things about it. Good. Although I don't really read reviews because why well, would I? Well, clearly you did. You, I mean, you just told me you did. Well, hmm. <laughs> I read the Edinburgh reviews, like, on the train home. So you did. Yeah, I did read them. And, like, yeah, most of them were nice. Mm. Mm. 
Like, some of them are a bit wild. But basically, yeah. Right, in, like, the bunker, yeah, like, yeah. on press night, yeah. I swear down, there's, like, this group of reviewers, like, yeah. some, like, old, like, white men. Of and course, they literally, yeah. like, sat at the back. And, yeah. like, during the show, like, you come down, like, you walk through, you're like, oh, yeah, like, blah, blah, blah. It's, like, promenade. They literally just, like, were there just jamming. I was like, nah, you still need to go. I was going to kick them out. So I'm going to read. Their, 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 their reviews are the ones I'm going to read first. I'm going to yeah. be like... Yeah. What do you say about me? Yeah. And I can like I'll start Twitter war with Or them. perhaps those reviews will be the ones which are least relevant because they are not reflective of no. you and your story. I was like, what's going on here? So there we go. Wallen. I want to know your top tips and advice on surviving the Edinburgh Fringe Festival though, because there is a yeah. huge risk of burnout and exhaustion and mm-hmm. mental fatigue mm-hmm. associated with taking a show up to that uh, yep. up to that city. How did you as a performer writer deal with it? Don't live in Edinburgh City. So I uh, lived in Leith, which is like maybe like half an hour walk into the town centre. Mm-hmm. So like do that because your show is probably going to be on during most shows like theatre shows are on during the day. So it's not like it's like an unsafe journey or anything like that. So like, yeah, don't live in Edinburgh Centre. So that's a good way to kind of. It means that because you're not there, you're not tempted to kind of like do the all-nighters and do all that stuff. Because it's like, oh, actually, you know what? And then even if you are a bit drunk, um, like you can walk home. By the time you walk home, you're sober. It's perfect. It's amazing. Because <laughs> everything's uphill. Everything's uphill. <laughs> Doesn't matter which journey you're going yeah, on. Yeah, go, go, go and live in Leaf, I would mm. say, is, is a top tip. So just not living in Edinburgh Centre. It's also cheaper. So um, I think have a frank and honest conversation about and even if that conversation was yourself about what your finances are and how you're going to budget your edinburgh trip um halfway through edinburgh i realized i had no money and i had to i had a bit of a panicky conversation with tsb bank like guys can you accept my overdraft and it was absolutely fine but yeah so have a real frank conversation whereas like i very much went to edinburgh was like oh it'll work itself out no, it won't. So actually have a real honest conversation with yourself about money and how you're going to kind of work that out. I was quite lucky I got paid in Edinburgh, not lots of money, but I know a lot of people don't. So working out your money sitch. Um, I changed my gym membership over, that helped. <laughs> so like I went to the gym and like, you know, did all that stuff. And just like, don't read your reviews your producers can and they can pick out all the quotes and stuff so don't read your reviews while you're there and I think just like remembering why you're there and like remembering what you've what you've what you've come there for and I think if you've like come there with like dreams of like fame and glory and like fringe first and awards and whatever then I just think when you don't get that what are you left with just like just yeah whereas like I just have a really I have a genuinely good time performing Funeral Flowers <laughs> like it's a great show not just because I've written it but in terms of like being an actor and like playing like six do I play six characters six different characters and like really stretching myself as an actor like it's just fun and like I have a really good time like connecting with the audience so if Funeral Flowers hadn't done well or as hadn't done well, and I'm saying well with quotation marks, then that's okay because I had a really great time doing my show and my audience has really got it. So that's fine. Good. So I think that's, those are my tips. 
Emma, we've sat in this tiny boiling hot room for around um, half an hour, oh. and I still haven't spoken to you yet about the American Dream 2.0. Oh, uh, yes. So why don't we do that? Let's do it. Let's do that. Congratulations on that show, by the way. I saw it yesterday. And it's just sort of 65 minutes of constant rug pulling from under your feet that you yeah. think you're going, okay, so this is what they're talking about now. And then, whoa, all of a sudden, here comes this curveball. And there's so many different, um, really pressingly topical mm. uh, issues being discussed mm-hmm. um, really coherently and, and delicately and powerfully in the play. Mm. So um, there's striking parallels with, for instance, the Shimama Begum case, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the so-called, and this is me using... Um, inverted commas, um, Isis Bride, um, Sajid Javid as Home Secretary mm-hmm. and the policy of this government and um, abortion, especially if you look at what's happening in America mm-hmm. at the moment. There's so much that you've thrown into that. Mm-hmm. First of all, congratulations. And oh, secondly, tell me about that process. It was really an amazing process. So um, when I got asked to do to to be a writer on this project, uh, we, we had these recruitment workshops with the amazing community neighborhood theater actors and um i didn't know what i was going to write i didn't know I, d- I had no idea and the theme i knew was something to do with the american dream was the theme that we're taking from death of the salesman but i wanted to make sure it meant something to this particular group and so when we were kind of having workshops and me and Daniel having conversations. Is that Daniel Bailey? Daniel Bailey, yeah. who's the director um, of American Dream 2.0. The American Dream 2.0. <laughs> Stream will kill me if I don't say it correct. Um, when we started talking about it and, like, working with that cast, they were just so, in a way, had so many ideas about what a better world would look like. And it just really made me think of the first pilgrims who had left Britain in, you know, way back when to go to the Americas the, and the kind of political situation that they felt under and the kind of persecution that they felt as kind of, uh, kind of what well, they quite purist Christians and whatever. And like uh, the sense that they needed to go to this new land and, and create something. And I wanted to kind of take that feeling in with these guys who were very much like, pilgrims to the young Vic to create theatre and I was like the parallels between that just seem so strong and that's where the kind of starting point was for me was this land Akrima which is America spelled backwards and yeah what would a pilgrim look like now because with all that's happening I think we are we are in a point in our history where people have a similar feeling of displacement and wanting something different, which is perhaps why we've got, you know, Brexit or Trump or whatever, because people want something new. They want a new kind of world order, but um, there aren't any, I mean, we've kind of covered every part of the globe, ain't we? Um, So I wanted to kind of create that with this show. And it's really interesting because some of the things that have come up within the show so even like it's really weird so like the the whole kind of talk about abortion and what that is it's really really interesting to see that you know become quite topical quite recently because when I began writing it two months ago it wasn't so much the topic on everyone's lips what that was but I was like oh it's really interesting when I think of America because some of the themes I think about are abortion and guns and 
some of the more polarizing things that have kind of eked their way into this story. And there's so much going on in the news all the time. Mm-mm. It's like a box set and you've missed the first five episodes mm. and you're struggling hard to keep up with the news. Does that mean that you've got to keep up with that as well in terms of rewrites or, or to make to yeah. keep it as current and as and as topical as it's it's felt. weird i mean i didn't um i think like maybe i changed a few statistics actually um but in general it's really weird how and sad in some ways that the human condition is is that we just do things in cycles it feels like almost like we don't learn from our mm. historical mistakes and so quite a lot of stuff I've written didn't really need updating because it it's happening like these things are happening and um, you know we'll have a leadership contest very soon and like yeah how people switch around within that will be really interesting and the language that you use in the play the imagery you create is extremely visceral mm. and powerful and vivid. There's a scene in the play where one woman describes a dream uh, of having sex with, with a cat. Yeah. And, and the imagery that you bring into that is extremely vivid. The same with the, the description of abortion. Mm. Um, why do you choose that as your style to be so so clear with, with what you're creating in yeah. the audience's mind? I just really hate, I really hate in theatre, I'm afraid men tend to do it more I really hate implied things where you're like hinting at things because there's a sense that if you're talking about kind of sex or abortion or anything like that that you have to be like tasteful and and being tasteful comes in front of truth and I'm like actually no and I think that's particularly pertinent when we're talking about uh, women women's sexuality uh, and women talking sexually that we have to somehow make it comfortable and that monologue uh, the cat sex one <laughs> uh, the cat sex one is um, I think quite raw and quite you know filthy I suppose because actually I don't think we get women talking about sex in that kind of way and I'm like but we definitely do <laughs> well it's grotesque in the political definition of the grotesque mm, isn't it the, the, mm-hmm. the, the power in stirring up these images yeah yeah and I just felt that was like quite quite important and like exploring that there's some like romantic soppy stuff as well which oh, yeah, I yeah, also yeah. love <laughs> but yeah there's some yeah some yeah I just really dislike implied kind of implied idea like you know oh she's had an abortion so like the red sheet comes out and they whip it around I'm like no like actually talk about what that is and what that looks like and what that feels like and if you don't have that knowledge and experience then talk to somebody about it and like really explore it because that's what that's what we should be doing we should be on picking we should be exploring in our writing in our work and something else which is really clear in the play is the underlying topic of nationalism mm, and patriotism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that got me curious. I, was, I wrote it on my hand, actually, during mm. the show to ask you about this. So mm. what what do you think about patriotism? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it just a thing? Do you know what? It's really interesting because like, I think about it a lot. And I suppose my context is my, my dad's from Trinidad and my mum's family are from Jamaica. And whenever I think of that, I I usually think of patriotism when it comes to kind of England or America. It's something that I think about it more in terms of that. And it's like, to me, my kind of thinking is like when uh, when somebody is 
kind of white and from a more middle class background is patriotism. Yet when it's like a white working class person, it's nationalism. And I'm like, that's really interesting, actually, because I think also class plays a part in how that's seen. And I think when I think about what it is to be a patriot, I I don't know what that is because I don't feel a, a, a sense of patriotism to England, perhaps. It's more... I'm a Londoner is how I identify myself and I think that's true for quite a few kind of people of colour and and black people that actually it's not yeah I did a tour once uh, as an actor and I was like oh and we went through a lot of the UK and I was like oh oh, I I don't I don't know if I like the UK I don't I don't know if it's (laughs) something I like Um, and and it's not that it's just that London, and I think this is the problem with London, I think that's the problem with what's happened politically, is that London has separated itself. It has really separate, separated itself from the rest of the UK, and I find that really disturbing because actually we should be reflective of all the kind of wonderful things about all the different like amazing cities that we have in the UK. But we're not. We're just like kind of almost separated ourselves to the point where politically we have something like Brexit and all the Londoners are sitting around going, how did that happen? How did that happen? I'm like, well, come on, guys, like, leave your bubble. Like, hear what other people are saying. Like, see, like, listen to people. And it's like, that's not what's been happening. And I think we're in day. I think it's dangerous. I do. And what does the England flag mean to you? Um, you What, What does that imagery conjure up for you? Gosh. Oh, it's so sad. It doesn't come fear. And that's really sad. Because I'm born here. This is... Yeah. I, I, if I saw it... If I saw... Like, I, I went to drama school. In, I went to East 15, as I mentioned. But which, which used to be a quite a strong BMP stronghold um, for a long time. And there was a pub... I believe called the Winston Churchill and it had an England flag and I think I went in there maybe two or three times and always felt so uncomfortable and so unwelcome and it shouldn't mean that like I don't feel any kind of pride when I see that flag I feel scared I do and I'm sure lots of people would would echo Mm. that answer but you're sat in front of me now, Emma, with two incredible earrings, mm. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Um, are you political with a big P? Are you, or would you describe yourself as a political person? Um, yeah, I suppose that for me, the, the, the personal is political. So, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I am. Um, but it's really interesting. So when I wrote The American Dream 2.0, um, I think it was like the, maybe the first dress that we had um, and someone goes oh you know like it's it's really political and I was like I think it's quite personal because you know there's quite a personal story of, of a young woman uh, trying to find her place in life and like try and face find a place for her child spoiler um, <laughs> and that's personal actually that's a personal journey but I suppose yeah they are political I don't, I don't see how one can separate them I think everyone is political to an extent. I find it quite weird when people describe themselves as apolitical because I'm a bit like, unless you're, like, supremely wealthy. 
like and like as in like like the only people that can afford to be non-political are billionaires essentially but everybody else has a stake in in the politics of, of the land it seems crazy to me that people are like yeah i'm not political like what <laughs> Emma, I have so enjoyed chatting to you yeah. this afternoon and I really cannot wait to see what happens next, especially with bricks. All the best with everything. Thank and you. please come back to visit us soon. Emma Dennis Edwards. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.